What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Good stuff. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Stocks are mixed today and off their lows when the Dow is down more than 500 points. Investors remain at odds over the extent of any economic recovery. And oil is weighing big time on sentiment. Let's check on the markets right now. Dow's down 243, so about halved its losses. But look at the Nasdaq, which has now turned positive. That's been a theme of the last several weeks. I mentioned oil, as you just heard uh, plenty about, and you'll hear a lot more until 2.30 Eastern when this closes up, plunging to its lowest level since futures contracts were introduced back in 1983. The May contract is just above $4 right now, just above $4. Uh, We'll show you here the comparison between that versus some of the other contracts, which are over the $20 mark. Uh, So that gives you a sense both of the extreme state of the markets because of this May expiration, uh, but also what's going on uh, with June and the contracts a little bit further out. We'll have more on that in just a moment. It all comes as we brace for a big earnings week. 20% of the S&P is set to report, and there's been a lot of bad news in these reports so far. 80% of companies reporting have suspended their guidance, 20% have suspended dividends, and another 60% have suspended buybacks. So for more on today's sell-off, let's get to Bob Bassani, who as always joins us with the State of Play. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Uh, The good news is uh, we are well off the lows. We had a kind of ugly open there, particularly with uh, energy, industrial, materials, stocks. Uh, We are 30 points on the S&P off of the lows, still down, but nice recovery here. Uh, We did have Governor Cuomo talking about in the middle of the day about less hospitalizations. That helped a little bit. Uh, In terms of sectors, energy has just been a mess all day. Most of them down 2 to 3 percent. Chevron, Exxon, Kelly mentioned that May contract expiring tomorrow. A lot of ETFs own the front month futures contracts, but they can't take possession of oil. So they're having to sell that front month and there's nobody there to buy it, essentially. There's nobody who wants it. And that's why we're seeing that May contract collapse around four, five, six, seven dollars. The June contract about twenty-two dollars right now. REITs, industrials, also we consumer staples not doing much today. They normally do well. Procter and Gamble, Kimberly Clark, Colgate, they're not doing anything either today. One bright little piece of news. Finally, the banks are turning around. A little bit of an ugly week last week as earnings season started. Uh, key Corp, PNC, Zion, all up today. Even MTB also on the upside. Kelly, back to you. All right, Bob, thanks. We appreciate it, Bob Bassani. Now, the S&P over the past month is now up close to 25%. It's solidly bounced off the bottom. The question now, though, is with 22 million jobs lost in the last month, potentially millions more coming from failing retailers and shuttered restaurants, how can this market seemingly be so confident that in just three to six months' time, the economy will be able to roar back into action? For more, I'm joined by Mark Lashini, the chief investment strategist at Janney Montgomery Scott, and Bill Smead, who is chief investment officer of Smead Capital Management. Bill, what would you say? Well, uh, the last time that stocks like Amazon and Netflix were going wild while oil was getting tortured into the ground was in 1999. It was late in the dot-com bubble. And I would say that the way the misery stocks are being bought and being touted uh, is, a, is a definite sell signal. What are the misery stocks? And what do you mean by that? The- 
uh, Amazon, Clorox, Procter & Gamble, Netflix, Peloton, you name it. The, the, the businesses that are benefiting. I, I heard somebody on the prior show recommend Costco. I mean, is Costco ever going to have a better month than the last 30 days in, in the history of the company? And you've liked uh, Costco. Yeah. No, 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 no. 35 times earnings is what you have to pay to buy that stock. Right. Uh, so the, 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 the urge to buy the misery trade in here looking 60 days out, then the opposite side of that is things have gotten bombed out and there's virtually no hope for numerous areas, including energy. And that's where the opportunities are. So in other words, Bill, and we know your, your sort of bigger theme has been millennial household formation. They're going to be watching TV. They're going to be going to the grocery store. They're going to be raising kids. Does all of that get delayed? Does all of this change because of the valuations? If a name like Costco might have seemed attractive under that theme before, do you have to throw it out the window because of the extreme trading environment we're in? It, Kelly, that's a fantastic question. In 1972... Coke and Disney were trading at 60 and 80 times earnings. They're fantastic companies that did fantastically well, but they got overly popular and were terrible investments for the following 10 years. At the bottom in 1974, Warren Buffett said, and I quote, I feel like an oversexed man in a harem. <laughs> he was buying small cap and medium cap stocks that were total bargains because of the decline, but stocks weren't good for another eight or nine years after that. Okay. And that's the problem is what was already cheap has gone way down and what was already expensive has got a bid. So, Mark, let me bring you in on that. Would you be buying some of the bombed out sectors like energy? I wouldn't say financials is quite that bad yet, but it hasn't been great. Um, and do you think we're going to have to wait multiple years for these names to really start to perform? Well, Kelly, no, I don't think we're going to have to wait multiple years for that to develop. Uh, at the same time, I think I'd be a little bit uh, cautious with regard to nibbling at some of these bombed out sectors. There's legitimate reasons for why they've underperformed as badly as they have. Uh, at the same time, though, I do happen to think that the massive global stimulus that uh, represents about 20 percent of the world's GDP that's going to be unleashed economically, fiscally and monetarily over the next 12 to 18 months or so, uh, in concert with obviously a curing of the coronavirus by way of our health care policies and mitigation efforts, will lead to an improved outlook 12 months hence. And so I think particularly some of those industrial sectors, uh, maybe even certainly within the tech sector, some of the beta tech, the semis and so on, look kind of interesting as a barbell hmm. to the consumer staples and the healthcare sectors, which I think are still going to see loitering efforts on the part of um, investors to continue to look for those things that are, that are most predictable in a period that has tremendous uncertainty yeah. associated with I mean, the, the, the disconnect I hear between the two of you in some ways is time horizon, Mark. If you're looking for things that will work over the next six to 12 months, it's probably not the stuff that could work over the next six to 12 years, which goes back to you know what Buffett was doing in 1974. But let me ask you about the recovery, Mark, that, you, that anybody would dare to talk about. How, what's it going to look like? You know, how much is the help that we've already gotten really going to lead to one? What is the stock? The stock market seems to be signaling a pretty V-shaped rebound. Is that right? Do we, do we need another, a lot more action uh, in order to make that seem realistic? Well, I mean, good questions all, Kelly. And, you know, obviously the stock market is a discounting mechanism. Typically, it begins to rally in earnest about four months before the end of a recession. So that would have suggested that we would have seen better economic data probably coming as soon as August of this year. And that seems 
a little unrealistic to me, given obviously the still very strict mitigation efforts, even though some states are adopting some loosening of those protocols here going forward. Uh, but nonetheless, I think therefore we're going to see kind of a very nuanced recovery. Some industries due to massive pent up demand are going to experience V-shaped recoveries and others, particularly in travel, leisure and entertainment will be more L-shaped in nature. So mm -hmm. kind of aggravating those, I come out with kind of a U where we come out, we get a, a big bump, I think, initially, uh, but at the same time, though, a more glacial trajectory out going into the better, uh, the back half of this year and yeah. actually a much more robust 2021. Speaking about glacial, Bill, what if it's a, an ice age for a little while? Well, uh, you know, investing is a marathon and you're right, Kelly, the most success is had in durations of five to 10 years, not in five months. And when you get in a panic and you get in a, a huge, the, the fastest 36 percent decline in, in, in my career, you, you, know, you just want to give up on all that five to 10 year stuff. But I'd like to go back to the other guest point about the amount of money that's been thrown at this. So here's a very interesting thing. That money could very possibly end up being very inflationary. And the sectors that are the most bombed out right now are exactly the industries that historically have benefited from inflationary periods. Hmm. So in the 1970s, we went from 3% to 11% inflation. The most popular group at the end of the decade were oil stocks. 12 of the 20 largest cap companies in the Fortune 500 in 1981 were oil stocks. Uh, real property becomes extremely value in an inflationary environment because they don't make more of it, yeah. right? So, 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 for example, just to use one example, the companies that own the malls whether you have a J.C. Penney store sitting on that property or not, it's fantastic property in Los Angeles or Phoenix or or very attractive metropolitan areas in the United States. That property will have a lot of value at sure. some point, especially if we get in an inflationary environment. We got to go, Bill. I want to actually have this as a larger discussion next time. But if, if there are people who don't believe in the inflationary outcome, would you still ha say they should invest in energy stocks? In other words, if, if they think deflation is more likely, should you own energy or not? Uh, gasoline is automobile cocaine. You're going to make me think that through? For, I'm going to need you to <laughs> explain that out a little bit more for me. So uh, cheaper gasoline is better for car driving. And uh, that's about as far as I can take the analogy on my own. All right. That sounds like agreement. Bill, thanks. Bill Smead, Mark Lachini. Uh, that's what happens when I say real quick. Uh, let's turn to the breathtaking collapse of crude today. Uh, U.S. oil prices are on track for their worst day ever as demand continues to crater and that May contract is set to expire. Brian Sullivan is here. Brian, of course, you're just talking uh, about crude and whether you should bet on energy. Um, but can you explain to people what in the world is going on with today's action? Are we going negative uh, here by the close? We we, well, we could. We certainly could. But listen, I get the contract is a scary number, five bucks. It's a big headline, and it's real, and we should pay attention to it, but not entirely. As we've been talking about the last couple of days, started last week, the breakaway between the current contract, May, and the June and July contracts, as well as Brent crude, which is traded overseas, is doing this. Why? Okay, look at that. 567, 2248, 2781. That's weird. Okay, let me explain, try to explain what's going on. That May, con and Bob Pisani kind of touched on it. That May contract is for physical delivery in May. Okay, literally, I'm going to give you a barrel of oil or a super tanker. That contract expires tomorrow. 
So unless you can find a place to deliver oil, you know, in May in full storage, the contract effectively has very little, if any, value. In fact, that's to your point why the CME about, I don't know, 20 minutes ago came out with the headline that that contract could indeed turn negative. Mm. Effectively, this is where the, the paper market, the commodities market, you and I are just trading digital currency back and forth, Kelly, and the physical delivery of oil have to converge. There's no place to deliver it in Oklahoma or parts of Houston. Everything's full. So the paper market, unless you've got some crazy oil contract death wish, you're not going to buy that contract. Also remember, about 25% of that is owned by the USO oil ETF. So you've got some kind of funky ETF hmm. stuff going on. I don't know who, who could have talked about ETFs over the last year. Anyway, point is, uh, that's why we're seeing a different story. Look at Brent crude as a better indicator, Kelly, because that's global and there is some storage around the world. But Cushing, Oklahoma is a small town uh, with probably more oil tanks than people. Yeah. And it's filled. Super contango, right? That's when it's so bad you have to store it on the tankers. I'm, I'm trying to work on my energy knowledge, Brian, as this, uh, as this crisis continues. It sounds continues. like a dance, doesn't it? We're going to yeah. do the super contango yeah. on Dancing with the Oil Stars. I know, I know. But that just means the price of the future is much higher than now. And so you're, you're, you're paid to store something away. It's like I've got a candy bar for a dollar. You're willing to pay three bucks for it next month. I'm going to keep it in my desk drawer and then I'll sell it to you for $3 down the road unless Dom Chu eats it first. And that's what's happened to the, uh, to the oil market. We appreciate not, not that. Dom Chu. I just got a text from an oil trader saying, thank you for explaining the contract to people. Yes. You're welcome. We're going to talk more Same. about it right now as well. Brian, thank you. Uh, it's all certainly no laughing matter down in Texas. The collapse in oil is having a huge impact on one of the country's biggest states. In Houston alone, there are over a quarter million jobs just in the energy sector. How many of those will be left after this? For more, let's bring in Sergio Chapa. He's a reporter with the Houston Chronicle who's been tracking the economic toll this collapse is having on the economy. Sergio, what do we know so far? Well, what do we know? Uh, so far here in Houston, we've had about uh, nearly 250,000, a quarter of a million unemployment claims. Um, what we're on track to see by the end of April is 10% unemployment figures here in Houston. That's double digits. Those types of figures haven't been seen here in Houston since the 1980s. So definitely the situation is bringing up memories of the 1980s oil, oil bust and its effect here in Houston. Um, you know, uh, you know, a number of companies have issued guidance on, on, on layoffs. It seems so far the hardest hit are oil field service companies and, you know, oil field equipment manufacturers. They are taking the brunt of those layoffs right now. For sure. So the Houston economy, like we said, we know it's more diversified than in the past. Healthcare is a big part of that, you know, so on and so forth. But when you start comparing this collapse to the 1980s, no one wants to hear that. I mean, it's... There's been a contentious debate in Washington over whether to help oil and gas companies or not. And the tricky thing is, yes, they're hit by the same coronavirus that other sectors are hit by. But there's this idea, well, what if the price of crude doesn't come back? I mean, there, how do we know what to do in terms of this being a temporary problem versus something more lasting? Right. Now, what, I, what I've been told is that, you know, oil and gas, you know, even though the Houston economy has been diversified, oil and gas still makes about one third of the economy here. There's there just no ways around that. Uh, but what other people have told me that the oil and gas industry is actually better set up this time around at this downturn than, say, the 
86 or 20, 2016. Uh, you, you know, it's lean and it's mean and it's, uh, it's more efficient than, than before. And, you know, some companies are definitely in stronger positions than others with, with uh, you know, uh, enough cash and liquidity to, to ride out the storms. Others, however, are not. Uh, ones with weak hedge books and ones, uh, ones with high debt. So we're in the middle of the bank restructuring season right now. We're going to get a lot of guidance on that when we see, you know, how, how they do in, in, the, in the, uh, the refinancing season. And then also earnings season. We're, we're seeing a lot of guidance from there. Right. A lot of pain, again, in OFS. Yeah, I've been watching this flotilla as well. We've got these 20 Saudi tankers with 40 million barrels headed to the Gulf. I mean, it's just one thing after another after another. Uh, keep us posted, Sergio. We appreciate it. Sergio Chapa is a reporter with the Houston Chronicle. This is having just an awful toll already. Coming up, the coronavirus pandemic is shifting the dynamics of retail and will likely leave a permanent legacy of fewer department stores. We'll look at where the cash crunch is worst and what's next. Plus, protesters are gathering across the country demanding cities reopen their economies. We'll speak with the governor of New Hampshire about its protests and its plans to move forward after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. A lot will be different about America following this pandemic. That's especially true in the retail world, where many predict we'll see a lot fewer department stores. Many names were already struggling prior to this crisis and will emerge from this even weaker. Macy's, Nordstrom, Kohl's and JCPenney often come up as the hardest hit. Combined, they've lost more than $12 billion in market cap just since the start of the year. So what will the retail landscape look like after this crisis? Let's bring in CNBC retail reporter Lauren Thomas, as well as Jan Niffen, who is CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. It's great to see you both. And Lauren, let me just start with you. You know, it's dangerous in the media, obviously, to speculate about bankruptcies. But how close are we for some of these household names? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Kelly. I appreciate it. Um, But certainly the clock is ticking for some of these department store chains faster than others. I think first and foremost, uh, Neiman Marcus could file for bankruptcy uh, as soon as this week. Um, So the, you know, less time to spare, I guess, there. And um, JCPenney as well um, is, is on top of the list. I think both of these companies missed uh, interest payments on debt last week, um, which has kind of put them into these this grace period of 30 days where there's not much time, you know, they need to come up with money or else they could ultimately slide, you know, slide into bankruptcy. Um, so those top of the list, um, but certainly Macy's, Macy's is, is trying to come up with cash as well. I think one uh, department store chain, a former department store chain CEO put it to me best when he said this is a liquidity crisis of enormous consequences. So it's really going to boil down to liquidity. You know, cash is flowing. When I talk to bankers, there's money out there that will certainly funnel into some of these retailers, uh, but it's going to be a matter of, of who is worth saving. You know, Jan, I'd also seen uh, you and others kind of openly talking about the future for JCPenney and Neiman after they've missed those interest payments. So what are we talking about? A reorganization? a liquidation. I think you were the one who made the point. It's hard to have a liquidation sale when no one can go into the stores. 
Yes, and I actually expected to see Neiman's file over the weekend, and they didn't. So, you know, there's a possibility they'll sort something else out, and Penny's is in the same situation. They may or may not file. But even if Penny's doesn't file, they have about 850 stores. They probably need more like 500 stores. So if they give one in to reorg, they'd probably come out with 500 stores for starters. So I think we would see a big store closing program either way. Neiman's, I've been expecting to go since 2014. They've made it all the way to 2019. But I still think somebody would buy the intellectual property. We know that Bergdorf Goodman's worth you know, a lot of money. It would obviously go to somebody. It would continue in business. But a lot of retail is going to go away. And even if Macy's doesn't have to file, I don't think they will. I don't think Nordstrom's files. I don't think Kohl's files. I don't think Macy's files. But, you know, Macy's already told us they're going to close 150 stores. My guess is post-COVID, it'll be 200 hmm. or 175. It'll be a lot more stores. There's probably at least a 10, even maybe even a 20% store closing program at a place like Nordstrom's on the other side of this. And they've only got 123 full-line stores, and they're really well positioned in all the malls, yeah. but they can't really want to keep all of those stores. And so we're going to see that across the industry. And probably 10% of the stores, maybe 20% inside the malls are going to close. And the crazy thing, Lauren, about this is that, you know, the process of creative destruction is always going to have its winners and losers. And it, in many ways, that's a healthy thing. But what happens when we're just in the destruction phase because of a pandemic? So, in other words, it's not that they're going out and there's somebody else who's, you know, excited to come in. And maybe there will be. I mean, there have been a lot of companies opening brick-and-mortar stores lately. Uh, but what happens right. to, to fill that void? Oh, I, I think on many levels it's almost ironic because for the longest time, you know, the real estate industry was touting, we're bringing in gyms and theaters and these mm. experiential places, um, you know, to drive traffic. And, th and that was what was filling the space of apparel, you know, as, th as that was kind of falling out of, out of fashion. And now, you know, we're thrown into this world where I think many of us are going to be so hesitant to return to those things. Um, and like you said, you know, not many businesses necessarily <laughs> looking to open right now. So certainly as that space, you know, as these department stores inevitably, some of them will close. I think it'll take time to repurpose that, whether it turns into a uh, an Amazon distribution center. You know, I think yep. maybe that's something we're going to we're going to look to versus even a, a movie theater at this point. Um, just as, as kind of this entire entertainment industry uh, has been flipped on its head. No, that's such a good point. I have to continue the conversation about how to reimagine them all and what that means for uh, everybody left holding the bag. In the meantime, guys, thanks. Appreciate it. It's a tough week uh, for those retailers, as you said, Jen Niffen and our Lauren Thomas. Thank you. We just want to get a quick check on oil here. Uh, the May contract continues to collapse this afternoon, hitting its lowest level ever. No surprise. I mean, look at the top prices we're talking about. We actually just briefly went below $3 a barrel. We're at three twenty-three right now. And you're seeing this correctly. It's an 83% drop just in the session. We'll continue to explore the difference between the May expiration, the June contracts, which have prices more in the 20s throughout this show, and next hour into the oil close, where it's possible, as we've just heard from regulators, the oil price could go negative. Whether that happens, we have about a little over an hour to determine. Coming up, to swipe or not to swipe, analysts are debating the credit card stocks with a third of their revenue on the line. Should you bet on a rally when the economy makes a comeback? We will debate that. Plus, location, location, location. Home price is expected to take a hit from the downturn, but only in certain markets. We'll have those details ahead. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. 
To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know. The head of the World Health Organization is warning that the worst of the pandemic is still ahead of us, even as many countries begin to ease their virus-related restrictions. He did not explain his assessment, but the virus is expected to spread across Africa, where many healthcare systems are less developed. Dozens of protesters gathered at Pennsylvania's capital to pressure Governor Tom Wolf to reopen that state's businesses by May 1st. Protesters defied mitigation guidelines by standing close together and without face coverings. Facebook removed pages promoting anti-shutdown protests in California, Nebraska and New Jersey after consulting with officials in those states because the gatherings would violate social distancing rules. And 800,000 Portuguese students under lockdown will now tune into school using their televisions. Teachers will deliver 30-minute pre-recorded lessons on that state's broadcast TV station. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus by going to CNBC.com. We're getting creative with the way we educate the kids. Cal, back it's to you. It's TV. What's not t- there you go. That's one way to get him to watch school. Uh, anything on TV these days. Sue, That's thanks it. very much. Mm-hmm. Sue Herrera. Well, it's no surprise the coronavirus has led to a huge drop in consumer spending, which has some questioning the strength of Visa and MasterCard. Both payment stocks have been powerhouses of the past decade. Take a look at those gains, up seven, eight, nine, ten times over. But now R.W. Baird is saying that two-thirds of credit card payment volumes are in jeopardy, and there's no telling for how long. For more, I'm joined by Lisa Ellis, a partner at Moffat Nathanson, and Chris Donat is managing director and senior analyst at Piper Sandler & Company. In a nutshell, Lisa, you're bullish on these names. Chris, you're more bearish. So I I would love to hear um, the case, Lisa. We've heard a number of people, I guess, on the show even last week uh, talking about how they they don't want exposure to these names anymore. Is the is the era over? Uh, No, I mean, of course, definitely. While consumer spending is depressed, I mean, credit card volumes will be down. Um, But the silver lining of the current crisis is that it drives acceleration in a lot of the underlying cash displacement trends that drive this whole sector. People don't want to touch cash. The WHO is even um, uh, telling people not to touch cash if they can avoid it. Contactless, online buying, all of these secular drivers Mm -hmm. um, are only accelerated now. And so when we come out of this later this year, next year, actually, the growth rates will be accelerated uh, for Visa and MasterCard and the rest of the sector. Yeah, I know. I swear by Apple Pay these days. Uh, You know, and again, that's all built off of the card. So you have a buy on Visa, $200 price target, buy on MasterCard with a 305. Chris, let me bring you in. Um, your Visa target is 170. For MasterCard, you're at 240. And interestingly, you've been underweight or negative on these names since at least 2017. Is it a valuation story or a, a kind of a, a business transformation? Well, in prior years, it was a bit more of a valuation story. I thought there were some more risks in the uh, in the stocks and to the valuations, some from regulatory and some from uh, 
from just the, the mix of business. Right now, the biggest concern for me for Visa and MasterCard is they get about a third of their net revenue from cross-border activities. And that's part of the economy I'm not sure is going to recover you know, in the next few months or maybe even the next few quarters when you think about what's going to happen to international travel, both from a consumer and business perspective. I think you have to be concerned that this is something that might not recover until 2021 or, 2021, or maybe even after that. Uh, that, that's my biggest concern for a very large chunk of these in MasterCard's revenues. So why have you been neutral on them? Was it more the valuation story earlier? Because I guess my question is, and yes, it's a third of their revenues, but is, is their story otherwise intact, Chris, if you put that aside? And I know that's a big caveat. Yeah, yeah. I, I think most of the other part of the story is intact. I think, you know, consumers will definitely continue to use their debit cards. And that's not just the United States, but globally. Credit card spending, you probably see a little bit more of a hit, too, because there's more discretionary spend. And all this depends on how long this lasts. I agree with Lisa's point that you're, you know, there's parts of these in MasterCard that will benefit from the shift to contactless. But in my mind, a lot of that shift, whether it's contactless or e-commerce, you're just displacing one credit card payment. Maybe it was a in-store payment with an online payment. So that's mm-hmm. net-net kind of a wash for Visa and MasterCard. All right, Lisa, last word to you. Why aren't you more concerned about a hit to cross-border uh, revenue there if it's a third of revenue for these companies? It is a third of overall revenues is cross-border, but only about 20 of that 35 or so is actually travel-related. Um, the rest is e-commerce, uh, and e-commerce, we're seeing all the numbers, is, is going through the roof um, as a result of people being home. So. Um, but no question, I mean, it's true, that 20% or so of revenues that's in the cross-border travel-related spending is taking a hit. It, it doesn't actually go to zero. I mean, there's expats that are still in other countries using their cards. Land borders are still open. But that will, that piece will be depressed for at least the next few quarters. Last uh, comment, Lisa. Do you think these stocks, even being bullish on them, that they can be powerhouses like they were of the past decade? Or do you think that was a one-time phenomenon? Oh, no. I mean, we global card penetration is only at about 45 percent right now. Um, Ten years ago, it was at 28. Uh, and and so we're actually still in the steep part of that S-curve. I mean, we've got five to ten more years to go. I mean, I would definitely underwrite these stocks for another decade of this 20 percent earnings growth we're used to seeing out of them. Wow. All right. Fascinating. That was a great discussion. Thank you both. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis and Chris Donat on Visa and MasterCard. Coming up with cities across the country shut down and unemployment rising, many are starting to make a big push to reopen the economy. But of course, it's not as easy as just turning a key. The governor of New Hampshire joins me next with a look at what's ahead for his state as protesters hit the streets. Plus, it's the hunt for a test from South Korea to California to Alabama. We'll look at one state's journey in this hunt for these important tests. The exchange is back after this short break. Before we go, though, we're watching oil closely. This plunge is almost complete. The May contract, which is expiring tomorrow, is now at $1.45. We've never seen anything like this, with maybe just one exception in history. Uh, We'll continue to check on the forward contracts. The close happens in an hour. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's the carnage across the energy complex right now. Uh, May WTI crude, uh, because nobody wants to actually take physical delivery, is plunging 
uh, in the last session here before the expiration tomorrow. It's at a buck 20. That's a 93 percent drop. Uh, there's a look at June's, the forward contract, which tells you a little bit more about what the actual kind of economic price is right now. It's just under $22 a barrel right now. We'll continue to follow all of this for you. In the meantime, let's get over to Dom Chu. He has a check on the market and today's movers. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, let's get a check on how things stand for the major stock indices. We're generally lower on the day, though off the worst levels of the session. The Dow, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq, you can see they're off roughly about one and a third percent for the Dow. That's 327 points. The S&P off by 25 points, a percent. The Nasdaq off just marginally. Now, the S&P was down by about 45 points at the low. The Dow was down 507. Checking out the actors sector wise, the lone green spot here, healthcare up by about one tenth of one percent, posting fractional gains, comm services and consumer discretionary round out the top three, as you can see here in terms of outperformers. Meanwhile, the losses coming in energy, as you mentioned, those oil prices, also real estate and utilities as well. Now, a few stocks to watch. you got shares of Boeing right now down just about, uh, call it 5% here. The biggest drag on the Dow Industrial is driven in part by analysts at City downgrading that stock to neutral from a buy. Netflix also on the rise and still hovering near record high territory as it gets ready to report earnings tomorrow. And then upscale burger chain Shake Shack up on the day after it said it's returning a $10 million small business loan it got from the government after it raised about $150 million in an equity offering last week. So, Kelly, those are the three movers to watch on the day. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, thank you very much. Meantime, Americans are starting to voice their anger over these forced lockdowns. Hundreds of protesters demonstrated outside the New Hampshire State House this weekend, calling on the government to reopen the economy. Joining me now is Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. Governor, welcome. Thank you. Uh, why stay closed? Uh, well, it's not a matter of just staying closed and staying open. It's not really a binary function. Uh, what, we're, what we've had to do, uh, as many states have, is take a very serious action, whether it's a stay-at-home order, essential versus non-essential businesses, closing uh, the physical structures of schools while maintaining remote learning. Uh, and we're only four, five, six weeks into this. Now what we're looking to do is we're bringing stakeholders in and we're designing guidelines, new pathways forward to get a lot of these businesses going. Um, and, and again, you have to be stepwise about it. There are some that we probably won't be able to, to get going for quite some time. There's some we could probably do in short order. Hospitals, for, for example. Um, we're going to look to get uh, elective surgeries and other procedures going because just in New Hampshire, hospitals are losing anywhere from 150 to $200 million uh, in just this month. And so, again, allowing them to have the PPE, the testing capacity, their ability to segregate COVID versus non-COVID populations and get some of those procedures going back forward uh, is a great first step and probably one of the first areas we'll go after. So, again, it's not an A versus B. It's really about setting these guidelines uh, where we think they need to be for public health and moving forward. You know, one of the things everybody says uh, is kind of contingent on in, in terms of getting things going is testing, widespread testing that president says the states need to do more. You know, all companies are trying to figure out how much testing to do. But is testing really the answer? I mean, take a business like ours. You could test everybody one day. They all go home. They live their lives. Maybe go to the grocery store and so forth. Are you going to test them again the next? I mean, is testing really the answer or how else do we try to think about gradually reopening these economies? Testing is a huge part of the equation. Just to your point, it isn't just about giving one per- one person one test and, and sending them on their way and saying goodbye and good luck. Um, it's a- actually having enough to go after those high-risk sectors. So maybe it's a long-term care facilities, hospitals, high-risk areas, um, social services, folks that are going in and working one-on-one with kids or families, 
uh, with issues of, of child abuse or domestic violence or whatever it might be, prevention services. Uh, a lot of those require one-on-one -on -one services. And so, again, you want to be able to let people know that if and when they may come in contact with somebody, that you can test them. They won't be quarantined for 14 days and get them back out there. That's a, a giant workforce issue, to be sure. Um, the antibody test, which is starting to come online. I believe the FDA has now approved four of them, if, I, if I'm correct. Uh, and those will start coming out, which is basically going to identify those who have yeah. had COVID. Maybe they didn't even know it. And then they can get back into the workplace that mm -hmm. much quicker with a lot of certainty that they're not going to be carrying the virus home. Although we also know there's a lot of false positives like we were talking about uh, this morning. Uh, you, let me ask you about the sequence and the timing here, which is so tricky. And, and whether we have to kind of just take the fall uh, as the blank slate to begin, you can't necessarily have people starting to go back to work unless their schools or some sort of child care open. You know, making those decisions obviously is a really tough call because they're dense environments with a lot of people. So do you try to do things all at once or do you or do you stagger them? <laughs> As we all see <laughs> the uh, computer trying to reconnect there. Uh, that was Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. We're sorry that we lost him uh, at the end of that shot. And hello to my family in Lisbon, New Hampshire, who's watching. Let's get back to the market story of the day, uh, which is crude oil. There are multiple contracts, one for each month. The May contract is collapsing as it prepares to roll over. It's below $2 a barrel. Brian Sullivan rejoins us, uh, along with John Kilduff of Again Capital. And Brian, as our Patty Dom has pointed out, if you look out, there's the Bakken oil is at minus three bucks a barrel in Canada, minus 450 Midland, uh, you know, positive, maybe around eight dollars Cushing, positive five. I mean, this is getting people say, hey, Kelly, look, it's just the May expiration. I get that. I get it. But there's still something really historic taking place here. I just tweeted out that I think it was 1961 or 62. Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in a basketball game, and the 100 points doesn't matter. If he scored 99, it still would have been amazing, but you wanted to tune in to see if he scored the 100 because it was kind of a round number thing, right? And I feel like the May contract, that's what's happening right now. I mean, this could go negative, Kelly. It could rebound tomorrow, by the way. The May contract will still trade. It's just not the front month contract. It could soar tomorrow. There's a lot of interesting things happening, depending on what you believe. you got the USO ETF. Uh, maybe some long pushes there. You've got people that maybe just some traders that just want to push it down. You might have the guy Adami's point earlier, uh, a hedge fund that is blowing up and needs to sell into this. Either way, the value of a physical delivery of a barrel of crude oil is, let's call it zero. I mean, the fund and, oil, and the May contract may not be yet at zero, Kelly, but really to my point about Will Chamberlain, is there a difference between a dollar eleven exactly and zero, I bet you the metal in the barrel costs more than a dollar eleven. Maybe just buy it for the physical barrel, so we can all go over Niagara Falls together when this is over. <laughs> John, what do you think our viewers need to know about uh, this trading activity? What would you say is uh, important about it, and, and what can we dismiss? Well, I think people have to understand one thing about futures contracts, particularly commodity futures contracts. There's a, there's this physical delivery component that I always argue over the years sort of keeps the pricing honest, if you will. Uh, what this collapse in the May contract is reflecting are the horrible, super-glutted uh, physical market conditions. You can't give this stuff away, as, as Brian was just basically saying. Just to put it into perspective for you, uh, part of the uh, crush today, there was a private report out that says inventories at the Cushing, Oklahoma delivery hub for this futures contract grew by about 10% last week. They're at 61 million barrels now. And that's up against an 85 million barrel uh, 
capacity. Hmm. So on that math, you can see we get to full up uh, in a matter of weeks. So that's what's helping to push prices lower. These prices have to get this low so that the supply can get cleared, whether it's from lesser production or some other hook or by crook to uh, to get it out of the system or to get refiners to potentially step up and produce yeah. more themselves. Uh, that's the only way to clear this. Brian, and again, the, the sort of further out contracts still show crude in the low 20s, which, you know, compared with two bucks certainly isn't cataclysmic. But should we expect this kind of pattern to recur or does $2 tell us something about what, like Kildup said, if this is kind of keeps the price honest? Well, I mean, that's that's a pretty shocking uh, indictment. I've heard of two buck chuck, which apparently a lot of people are also consuming barrels of at this time. Uh, listen, let's look at the June contracts. Let's look at the July contracts, 2214, 27 for July. Look at Brent crude. Those are the contracts for the actual price of oil going forward. You want to now pay more attention to this May thing is kind of to John's point. We're going to it's going to expire tomorrow. It's about a physical delivery issue, which is still a big deal. No one's saying it's not. But let's be clear. Look at the 20s. Now, here's what been sort of going back and forth all day on this. Um, if that June contract starts to roll over and fall like May has, mm-hmm. now that's pointing to a larger storage issue. This is not going to be maybe a one-month phenomena. This could be a multi-month phenomena. And why it matters, Kelly, is that it could signal that the oil market or players in it are predicting a longer and steeper economic slowdown than many people now expect. So watch that June contract. If it starts to fall in the next few days to 15 or 12 bucks, now you've got a more macroeconomic story. The May contract right now is just kind of a thing, kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I understand. And, John, the tricky thing about oil is unlike retail, where if you have a a bad spring selling season, you just get rid of all that inventory, you start fresh for fall. You can't really do that with oil. You know, a barrel is a barrel. And so it piles, every barrel that, you know, the demand disappears for piles up and then is an overhang on the market. So, you know, I don't imagine there's any hope that people driving benefit that much uh, from these low prices. How much would they even, are we even talking about in terms of gasoline? How much does that even matter? Well, we're going to, that's going to be the first step out of this abyss. Um, but I'll tell you, too, Kelly, the structure, the way you, the, the, it's almost unfortunate that the back month contracts are where they are because this only encourages uh, more storage of oil, more hoarding of it, because you can put it in something, sell forward, and lock in what today is a $20 a barrel profit, just about, wow. uh, minus, minus storage and, and other factors. So, uh, you know, that's this. Yeah, thing Kelly, of, let me, let me jump in. It's a great point. I want to make sure everyone caught that, Brian. Yeah, and is saying this will encourage at, hoarding. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, listen, the one thing I want this, to, listen, this is obviously history in the making. We are watching history. This is uh, unprecedented. You know, a, a long time ago in a life far, far away, I used to be a commodities trader. And, you know, days like this just didn't exist. But to John's point, taking physical delivery, which I used to trade and take physical delivery of certain commodities, taking physical delivery is a whole other thing. You've got to have a ship in port. You've got to have stevedores. You've got to load stuff. You've got to have a place to put it. I mean, it's a whole different animal, okay? So... That, that's one of the reasons you're seeing this. Look at COP, ConocoPhillips today. ConocoPhillips stock is higher. There are some oil stocks that are down a percent or two, maybe a little bit more, but the oil equities are not getting crushed today. And I think that's one of the things that we need to look at. It's not all doom and gloom out there today. Great point. We'll leave it there. Uh, Brian Sullivan, John Kilduff, thank you both.
Thank you. And stay tuned next hour. Not only do we have the close at half past, uh, but Goldman Sachs head of global commodities, Jeff Curry, will join us at the top of the hour to discuss this plunge, his takeaways from it and what happens next. In the meantime, Montgomery, Alabama is home to Hyundai's only North American factory. And when the town had its first case of coronavirus back in mid-March, the mayor took action and called on the automaker for help. Elon Moy has a story of what happened next. Elon? Well, Kelly, Hyundai was actually one of the first calls that Mayor Stephen Reed made. He was on the hunt for test kits, and his story shows just how hard it can be to get them. We did that because we thought there would be a big demand on our federal government, and we were concerned about being able to get the amount of test kits that we would need. Now, Hyundai operates a $2.1 billion plant in Montgomery. About 4,000 people work there. And the mayor was hoping that Hyundai could help because the automaker was already battling the virus in its headquarters in South Korea, and it appeared to be winning. One of the things we learned from our parent company in Seoul, South Korea, is testing uh, is universally seen as a best practice to address this issue. So we believe that testing was the best line of defense, the best first line of defense. So Hyundai is now committed to providing 10,000 tests from Montgomery. They've partnered with another Korean company, Seagene, to distribute them from a facility in California to Alabama. This could be a game changer for Montgomery. It represents about five times the number of people who have been tested so far. The city has 226 confirmed cases of the virus as of this morning. Three people have died, but the mayor is worried that those numbers aren't accurate. In terms of test kits, we just don't have enough of those. And hence, I believe that's leading to a, a alarmingly low number of confirmed cases that we have in the community. So the good news is that the first batch of test kits have arrived in Alabama. The bad news is that the city is still waiting on emergency FDA approval to use those kits. So, Kelly, a month after that first phone call with Hyundai, the saga is still not over. Back to you. Still waiting on emergency approval. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that story. Elon's fascinating. Thank you for bringing it to us. Elon Moy. Coming up, from tax relief to testing to equipment, truck owners say they need help and they need it fast. What's at stake if they don't get it? We'll explore that next. Welcome back. The price of WTI crude just broke, broke below a dollar a barrel. Remember, a dollar a gallon for gas these days is extraordinary. We're talking about under a dollar a barrel. We've talked a lot this show, and we'll talk more next hour about what's going on here. But this 95% plunge in a day is shocking to see. We have about half an hour to go. We'll see if it does turn negative. The forward contracts further out tell you maybe what might be more of the true economical price or the market price, so to speak. The June contract is trading in the $22 a barrel range. Uh, July is trading at 27 But as May prepares to roll off, nobody wants physical delivery of this stuff. And so just around a dollar is where we're at. Now, America's truckers are themselves issuing a Mayday call, warning that they are driving without adequate protection during the coronavirus outbreak. If truckers are sidelined during this crisis, the nation's supply chain, including groceries, could be too. At the White House last Thursday, President Trump highlighted the importance of these truckers to the country. At a time of widespread shutdowns, truck drivers form the lifeblood of our economy and the absolute lifeblood. For days and sometimes weeks on end, truck drivers leave their homes and deliver supplies that American families need and count on during this national crisis and at all other times. 
Joining me now is Todd Spencer. He is president of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association. Todd, welcome. You guys have a number of things you say could help here, including things like waiving the heavy vehicle use tax, carrier registration fees, get more funding through the small business lending program, and so forth. Do you feel you've been left out of the relief efforts? Well, pretty much, I guess I'd have to say the relief efforts have generally gone over the top of truckers. For the most part, Trucking is an industry that's predominated by small business. 96% of truckers work in fleets of 20 or fewer trucks. And right now, you know, the programs that they've created for small businesses really miss them completely. And at the same time, while you mentioned lower fuel prices just a second ago, what's happened with drivers right now is the rates that they receive for hauling the goods are pretty, have pretty much been cut in half. I mean, they're wow. facing a real economic crisis to be able to continue to operate, not to mention the fact that they actually are on the front line Absolutely. in battle against coronavirus. And my question is, do they feel protected on the job? At least you can say a trucker is kind of in his own environment. I've seen the occasional cat, uh, but for the most part, it's just them in the cab. Is that enough or is their interaction with the supply chain still putting them at risk? And are you seeing absenteeism? Well, certainly the numbers that are that obviously the numbers that are concerned with health is are growing and we're certain that there are going to be more that have been exposed and quite likely have the virus but realistically truckers are first responders our whole economy runs on trucks everything that we need the vital things in the stores they only get there by truck and you know even if nothing was wrong in 3 days those stores are empty so they really are critical they go everywhere they go into the hot zones and, you know, we think there ought to be greater efforts made to provide PPE to them because we really want to keep them on the job and we don't want to get them infected. Yes, absolutely. And testing and, and all the rest of it. I mean, what are your top priorities uh, in a nutshell? You, you know, right now, I'd have to say certainly testing is vital to all of us. If our folks are exposed, undoubtedly some are going to get it. If they if they test positive, then they need to quarantine. But we don't think it's realistic that the only option they have is to quarantine at a truck. We think far more could be done there. And we also think that the PPE ought to be made available to them. And that's been a challenge. We understand FEMA is stepping up some uh, to provide some of that, but we haven't seen it yet. All right. Well, Todd, it's good speaking with you. I hope this maybe add some urgency to the issue. We all depend on it, and we thank you for everything that you're doing. And thank you, Kelly. Todd Spencer is the president of the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, and they say they need help big time, too. Let's check on crude before we head to break. 25 cents, 23 I mean, it's unprecedented, this collapse. Again, this is a dramatic uh, exaggeration of what's really going on in terms of the economic price, but it's happening nevertheless. We're down at 15 cents. A lot could happen in this break. When we continue on the other side, our breaking news coverage of the markets and oil continues. The oil closes at 2.30 Eastern time, just half an hour. And we're going to be joined by Goldman's head of commodities, Jeff Curry. Stay with us here on The Exchange and Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. 
We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.